Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly Bright Focus chat presented by the Bright Focus Foundation. My name is Guy Eakin. I'm a PhD in biology, and I'm also the vice president of the scientific affairs at Bright Focus. Today's discussion addresses the question, what's on the horizon for macular degeneration research? And on our last call last month, we asked people what topics they were most interested in learning more about, and research was at the top of many people's lists. So on this chat, we're going to look at research discoveries that could impact prevention and treatments. We're going to cover therapies that are currently available, what therapies might be outdated, and maybe some promising technologies that are on our horizons. We're going to have the chance to hear from a clinician, Dr. Brantley from Vanderbilt University, and also a patient advocate, Ms. Deanna from Florida, who are going to join me on the call. And then after that, we're planning on having having a question and answer session on topics related to this chat. So if you have a question for the panelists, I want you to press star three at any time during the call to submit it to an operator. Now what's going to happen is that'll take you out of the call You'll be put into a conversation with one of our operators who will take down your question, and then you'll be returned to the call. So for those who are following us online, you can follow the conversation and pose questions on Twitter using the hashtag BrightChats. And this is important. If for some reason you're disconnected from the call, here's a number that you can use to call back in. You can dial 877-229-8493. And then there will be an ID code, and that ID code is 112435. So again, that's 877-229-8493, followed by an ID code of 112435. So I'd like to kick things off by introducing Dr. Mylon Brantley, who's an Associate Professor of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at Vanderbilt University. He's both a researcher and a clinician who treats macular degeneration, and his research involves pharmacogenomics. And this is a cutting-edge area of personalized medicine that's being applied to eye diseases and vision loss. So here at Bright Focus, we fund leading research in vision diseases, and we're proud to say he's also one of our current grant recipients of ours. So thank you, Dr. Brantley, for joining us. My pleasure, Guy. So I, I first want to thank... Uh, Guy and, and Bright Focus for giving the opportunity to to talk to some folks who may have macular degeneration and certainly have some questions about it. In a way, I feel like I'm talking to one of my patients in the office. Uh, maybe we've just had the diagnosis or maybe it's something that's been going on for a long time. But this time I get the opportunity to talk to dozens of people at once. And so I really appreciate that. Um, when I talk to patients about age-related macular degeneration, which I usually call AMD, um, I stress the age-related part. And I would rarely diagnose AMD in someone under the age of 55 and, and usually more likely 60. So if someone is being told that they have AMD in their 30s, it, it might be worth looking into the fact that it could be something else, something that looks a lot like it and is closely related, but maybe in an inherited condition. But AMD itself is a is the leading cause of irreversible vision loss in older folks in the United States. And as we know, it affects really the central vision. And that's an issue because it can affect driving and watching TV and reading and recognizing faces. And these are the things that my patients tell me um, most about. And I will often try to 
let a family member understand that by having them put their fist right in front of their eyes and say, you know, in general, you can see things around. You can recognize that there's a person standing there and maybe in a white coat, and you might be able to tell if it's a man or a woman, but you can't make out the fine details. And in general, this is what AMD is about. Now, we've all heard the terms dry and wet, and that sounds very simple, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. Of course, dry and wet don't really have anything to do with the way the eye feels. It has to do with whether or not there's leakage of fluid in the back of the eye. And we all kind of know what wet means, but dry can actually mean a lot of things. When I talk to patients, I, I talk about AMD as being early or advanced. And the first signs of AMD, the early signs, are typically these little yellow spots on the retina called drusen, and these are waste deposits. And we can see those when we look at the back of the eye, and we can see them in pictures, and maybe you've had doctors show those to you. And typically, vision is not affected. Well, this is dry AMD. There's no leakage of fluid at this point. This can progress to one of a couple of different forms of advanced AMD. First of all, cells can simply just die. They quit functioning and they eventually get, they go away. And this is called atrophy. Atrophy just means without form. The cells aren't there anymore. And because sometimes the area of atrophy looks sort of like a map, we call it geographic atrophy. And this has been abbreviated to GA. Well, this is also dry AMD, but it's advanced dry. So when you say I've got dry AMD, you might be meaning I've got early AMD with just the drusen, or you might be meaning I've got the advanced geographic atrophy dry form. Now, the other advanced form is called neovascular or exudative or most commonly wet. And that's when new blood vessels grow under the retina and they leak either blood or fluid. And that can lead to sudden visual changes. One day uh, you're seeing just fine and then the next day you're not seeing well either at all or things just seem a little bit fuzzy. That's the wet. So we know what someone means when they say I've got wet AMD, but the dry could mean either very mild or it could be significant. Now, there's, there was one study that was done, and, and actually a follow-up study, those, and you, you may be familiar with these, called the Age-Related Eye Disease Study, or AREDS. And the, the first version was done back in the 90s, and the second was done starting in 2006. And AREDS, the original, looked at a series of vitamins to see whether that could help prevent people from advancing from that early stage, the drusen. And, and more appropriately, it's called intermediate AMD, where you've got some significant drusen. See if that could help prevent that from advancing to the advanced stage, particularly the wet stage. And this tested a, a, a group of things, um, including beta carotene, vitamin C and E, zinc, and copper. And what it found was patients using these supplements compared to patients who were given a placebo, they had about a 25% chance less chance of advancing to the wet form of AMD. And this was kind of our best thing that we had for folks for a while. And then with AREDS2, they studied some other molecules. Many of you have heard of lutein and zeaxanthin, pigments that are typically found in the retina. And so these were studied in this case, as well as fish oil type um, molecules. And the bottom line was the, the AREDS2 formula, the one that came out of AREDS2, recommends 
lutein and zeaxanthin instead of the beta-carotene, vitamin C and E, and the zinc and copper. And this is really, on evidence-based medicine, which we kind of like to follow, the best thing that we have to tell people who have those drusen and have a likelihood of progressing to advanced AMD. Now, treatments for wet AMD, many of you know, currently include injections into the eye. We call them intravitreal injections. And there are three main drugs that we use, Lucentis, Avastin, and ILEA. And there's a long story about those, and we can talk about those at some point if you have a question about them. But these are all molecules that work against a specific molecule that's in the eye and throughout the body called vascular endothelial growth factor. And of course, that's a little too long. So we call it VEGF. So these are all anti-VEGF molecules. And most of the new treatments that people are looking at for wet AMD are actually things that intend to be used in addition to these anti-VEGF injections or to try to figure out if we can treat people with fewer injections and get the same results. Now, for the other form of advanced AMD, the geographic atrophy, there's not really a good treatment at this time. So that's where some of the things people are looking at now, drug companies are looking at ways to maybe slow down the progression of the geographic atrophy. The last thing I wanted to mention is the relationship between genetics and AMD. I have patients coming in all the time, or or even more importantly, their, or not, or as importantly, their their sons and daughters saying, well, mom's 85, she's got macular degeneration, I'm 60, am I going to get it? And there's definitely a relationship to genetics, but it's not an insim- a simple inherited condition. For instance, in, in eye conditions such as retinitis pigmentosa or Stargard macular dystrophy, these are inherited retinal disease, diseases where a mutation in a particular gene causes the disease. If you got the mutation, you pretty much have the disease. And depending on how it runs in your family, we can give you a pretty good idea of your likelihood of getting it. It may be 50% or 25%, something like that. But AMD, although it has a genetic association, it is association and it's not that clear cut. Whereas in those conditions, there are mutations. AMD has been associated with genetic variation. And that just means that maybe 60 or 70% of the population has a certain letter of the genetic code at a certain place, and the other 30 or 40% has a different letter. So there's variation at that spot. And what was found out about nine nine years ago is that certain genetic variation in certain genes, many of these related to the complement cascade, which is involved in immunity, our innate immunity, this was a new thing, some of that variation has a relationship to your risk of getting AMD. If you have the variant, it doesn't mean you're going to get AMD, but it makes it more likely because there are other things involved. And we might call them environmental things or non-genetic things. And actually, our lab with our Bright Focus funds uh, are looking into some of these non-genetic or environmental or other things and how they relate to the genetics. So those are the things that I just kind of wanted to mention at the beginning to sort of set, set the stage for questions that we had coming up later. I'll turn it back over to you, Guy. 
Well, absolutely. So thank you so much, Dr. Brantley. And I, I, I know for many people, uh, Dr. Brantley did a wonderful job of describing at a, at a very approachable level the biology of this disease. There were some big, big words involved. Now, I want to tell people, we're going to create a transcript of all of this, so don't worry about writing things down. There's going to be opportunities for you to either hear this broadcast, broadcast later through a recording or, or get a copy of the transcript. I'll tell you more about that later. I'm sure people have questions. So if you'd like to submit a question for the Q&A portion of the call, please press star 3 at any time during the call. No matter what's going on, if you press that star 3, you'll be transferred over to an operator who can take your question. So I'd like to turn the conversation over to Deanna from Florida. Uh, Ms. Deanna was diagnosed with age-related macular de degeneration, or AMD, about 16 years ago in 1998. And she's joining us today to share her story about how she approached the disease and how she continues to live with the, the disease. So, Deanna, welcome. Why, thank you. Hi, everyone. I'd really like to thank Bright Focus for allowing me this opportunity as well to share part of my story with all of you. As Guy mentioned, in 1998, I was diagnosed with wet age-related macular degeneration. I had no idea what this was. I had never heard of it. It was terrifying. And at that time, there wasn't much help or support available to me. I had to learn about this disease on my own and decided to become my own advocate. I went on the internet and read as much as I could about the disease. I know that knowledge is power. I knew I had to find a way to cope with this. I joined the Macular Degeneration Support Group at my local association for the blind and found comfort and loads of information on all the available visual aids that I could use to enhance my vision. To list just a few, there is high-intensity lighting available. There is video eye cameras that enlarge print and allow, allow you to write checks, read your mail, even read a magazine. There is lighted high-power magnifiers that I use all the time. There are computer programs that enlarge print and even speak to you. I myself have an iPad with enhancements for the visually impaired. I don't know what I would do without it. I have many marking pens that do not saturate paper, but allow me to see clearly what I have written. There's something called adhesive dots, little, little orange or red dots that you can put on your appliances to mark your hot, cold, or your on and off switches. I have stayed informed and used every available source of support that I can find. For example, the Library of Congress, it offers free books and magazines on tape, and they will even read the newspaper to you. My local and state department for the blind sent someone to my house to evaluate my vision loss and actually recommended all sorts of assistance for me. I have even taken a six-week course in living with low vision and no vision given at my local eye association. I've learned cooking skills, gardening skills, computer skills, and many other lessons they had to offer. My advice to anyone who notices a change in their vision, bending straight lines, spots on white walls, blurred vision, see your eye doctor immediately. If it is macular degeneration, the quicker you get there, the better. They have the latest treatments and the newest approved drugs, as well as information on continuing research 
that is being done today. You are not alone. For one, the website for this program called brightfocus.org is so informative that most of your fears will be eliminated and you can move forward to live a very happy and productive life. My motto is learn to concentrate on what you still can see and not on what you cannot see. With all related or age-related macular degeneration, you do lose portions or all of your central vision, but not your peripheral vision. You do not completely go blind, and you learn to cope and compensate with practice. I have been blessed. I still do almost everything I did before. Macular degeneration cannot stop me, maybe a little slower, a little differently, and certainly a little more cautiously but I do it with the same gusto that I have always had. I refuse to let macular degeneration win. Thank you. Well, thank you thank you so much, Deanna. And Deanna mentioned that you're not alone, and you certainly are not alone. Uh, we, She mentioned as well the low vision support groups that are available. We actually have a fact sheet with many of these low vision support groups that you can come to our website or call in, and we'll send you a copy. That number is 800 437-2423. We'll mention that number again later in the program. But I would I would take take the time now and, and thank our both of our speakers for sharing their perspectives and how they and in particular in the case of Deanna, how she's you know looked to her own horizons and plotted her own course for living with AMD. But we're gonna move on to the question and answer portion of the call. And if you haven't submitted a question yet and if you'd like to just dial that star three on your phone and we'll and talk to the operator and we'll get your question into the queue. So we did have, while we're waiting for questions to come in, we did have a number of questions that were submitted in advance by folks who were pre-registered. And our goal is to answer as many questions as we can that are representative of the caller's interest on our topics. And then after the chat, people can call Bright Focus at 800-437-2423 or visit our website and have their questions on macular degeneration answered by our own health education, educators. You can also call in to request a free copy of our brochure, Macular Degeneration, The Essential Facts, which answers many frequently asked questions. But starting things off, I think we've had so many questions that are coming in about stem cell therapies. And Carol from Colorado is asking in particular, she asked, I have early stage macular degeneration. Would it be a good idea to be in a trial looking at stem cell therapy to prevent its progression? I, I think I'll direct that one to Dr. Brantley. And, uh, you know, so, so tell us about stem cell therapies. How far along is that? Is that, a, is that a future treatment? Is that a present treatment? Where are we? Sure. That's a great question. And I get questions about stem cells all the time. Uh, I, I do want to talk about that. I, before I do, I, I just want to thank Deanna for a wonderful few minutes of telling us about her experience. She packed so much valuable information into just a few short minutes. I wish every one of my patients could hear what she just said. Um, but about stem cells, I, I, I do get the question a lot and uh, because it gets a lot of press and because it's pretty Exciting. We have to think of first about what the objective of stem cells are. When we look at what potential treatments that get the most airplay right now, those are gene therapy 
and stem cells for retinal diseases. Gene therapy has been effective in a couple of cases of a very specific inherited disease where the gene was missing, the cells were still there, and you could inject the gene you can inject a virus containing the gene underneath the retina, and that allowed that gene to go into those cells and make the protein product that was missing. So that's replacement therapy. Stem cells are very different. Stem cells are really designed to approach a problem where you are missing the cells now. The cells aren't quite there anymore, or certainly they're not functioning well at all. Stem cell therapy has the advantage of being more, um, you can approach different problems with the same sort of solution, sort of regardless of what gene or if it's macular degeneration has caused the cells to be lost. Stem cell therapy has the potential at least to put some cells back into the retina and have them form into the appropriate cells that are no longer there. So I think of it as when cells are missing. Well, just like I talked about earlier, the case where that really comes through is in geographic atrophy or advanced dry AMD. And as I look at on the, a, a list of clinical trials out there, and I'll tell you a little bit about that too in a minute, um, Almost all, all but one of any stem cell therapies are for advanced dry AMD or geographic atrophy. A stem cell is simply a cell that has not differentiated into the kind of cell it's going to be when it's all grown up. So there are a bunch of different kinds of cells in the retina, maybe eight or nine, and there are support cells for the retina. But the idea of a stem cell is you put an early cell in and you give it some chemicals that help it differentiate, or even some genes that help it differentiate into the right kind of cell you want to replace. And there are different ways to do this. You can take embryonic stem cells, and you hear a lot about that because some states think that's a good idea, some states don't think that's a good idea, and all that goes along with using embryos for research. There are another kind of stem cells called induced pluripotent stem cells. And that's a mouthful. That's IPSCs. And these are cells that you can, that some researchers can take basically from skin and they give them genes that help them become early cells again, progenitor cells, where they can then differentiate into the kind of cell that you need, like a retinal pigment epithelial cell. There are also some neurologic stem cells that have been used, and people are also using bone marrow-derived cells because, you know, the bone marrow has cells that differentiate into all the different type of bone cells, excuse me, all the different type of blood cells, and so this is another way to try to take an early cell and make it become the sort of cell that's missing. At the current time, there are no stem cell trials that are in the final phase. Now, clinical trials, we should talk about that, basically come in three phases, phase one, phase two, phase three. Phase one trials are very small, and they're completely safety studies, and you want to know if this drug or intervention is going to hurt anybody. And you do that in a small number of people, maybe 10 or 12, 20 maybe. Phase two is where a lot of the stem cell trials are, and those are ones where you crank up the numbers a little bit, give them to a a larger number of people. You're mostly concerned about safety, but you're also going to monitor whether or not the 
the, the there's any uh, effect of your treatment. And that's where a lot of these cells are. There's several different companies and groups working on them. And there are a few phase two trials out there working primarily for geographic atrophy. Now, your questioner said, do, should I, I've got early AMD, should I try to get stem cells to keep it from getting worse? No, because, again, what stem cells are trying to do is replace what's missing, and those things aren't missing yet. So that would be very premature. So the things that you recommend for somebody who's got early AMD who doesn't want it to be advanced is the AREDS2 therapy and a, and a few other things uh, that I would typically tell patients. Thank you. So I think what the question you brought up, the subject of, of clinical trials and the number that are going on. We have questions here about how we find out about trials that are maybe in our area of the country. And uh, certainly there's a wonderful website called clinicaltrials.gov, and that's all one word, clinical trials, followed by a dot and a G-O-V. And if you're interested in clinical trials going on in your area, you can go to that website or have someone help you and plug in information about where you're located and what conditions you're interested in. And they'll tell you what's what's in your neighborhood. Now, there are other questions there about what's involved in researching or or looking at uh, clinical trials and even in in, in participating in a clinical trial. And, and Deanna, I, I know you haven't participated in a clinical trial, but you did a lot of research as a patient on what you might do to actually ask those questions and how you'd identify those clinical trials. Do you mind sharing your experiences on that subject? Not at all. When I first was doing my reading and learned that there were such clinical trials going on, um, I approached my retinal uh, specialist. My retinal specialist evaluated my situation at the time and realized, although there were trials going on in which his offices were participating as well, I was not a qualified person to join the trials. Of course, I was quite disappointed, but was thrilled to know that this was going on. So as you suggested, if someone goes to that website and is interested in the clinical trials, that they find one that suits them in conjunction with what their retinal specialist advises. So that was the way I approached it. As I said, I was disappointed I could not join in, but at the same time was very pleased to know that there was ongoing trials going on. Well, thank you. I, let's move on to the next question so we make sure that we're getting as many people as possible in, in here. Joyce from Wisconsin is asking about her own personal horizon. She's saying, I was diagnosed seven years ago with early stage AMD. Is it possible that my AMD will never progress? So, so Dr. Brantley, you know, what do we know about early dry form of AMD, how many people are going to progress? Uh, how many people are, are, are just going to stay about the same? That's a great question. And it's actually a hard one to answer um, because, as I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, dry early AMD can mean a couple of drusen that the doctor notices or it can mean you got quite a few. And that difference kind of increases your likelihood of progressing. It also depends a lot on your age. If this, these drusen are seen in a 56-year-old and life expectancy is 85 to 90, you got a lot of years, you want to keep things going very well. If it's noticed for the first time in an 85-year-old, you have a great chance of never having it progress to where it's going to cause trouble. So in general, I would say about 
of, of people who have kind of the intermediate form of AMD, um, about 25% of people progress to the advanced form, and that happens in, in five, five to ten years or so. Again, that's very, very age-dependent. And so I always tell my patients that the number one risk factor for age-related macular degeneration is age. So that has a lot to do with it. And time, uh, as time goes on, if you look at the number of people who have AMD in their 60s, it's pretty small. In the 80s, it becomes more significant. Um, the most important thing is, and I'll echo what Deanna said, is you know, keep in touch with your retina specialist and get a, as much of an individualized view of what your retina looks like in terms of that'll help figure out the risk of progressing to the advanced form. So we do have some some more questions about these uh, about the idea of progression and what's in my future. Uh, Mrs. G from North Dakota asks, when I was first diagnosed and treated over a decade ago, my central vision was totally gone, and I was told that I would never change. But it seems that that would never change. But it seems that over time, the black hole has shifted to the right, and I can see more from the left side of my eye. Can you address that? So so. Do, do things change? Do, does it? Does how the macular degeneration appear? Does that change over time? It can. There are a couple of different ways it can. First of all, on a on a shorter term basis, someone might be diagnosed with wet AMD and they're treated, and their vision gets a little bit better, but it's not what it used to be. And the doctor says, I tell you what, we've done all these injections as much as I think we should. We've made all the fluid go away. There's no blood in the eye. You don't need injections right now. We'll keep an eye on you, but you don't right now. And we'll see what happens with the scar that's formed in the back of your eye. Sometimes that scar still has some life to it, not in a bad way, but tightens up over time. Just like a scar you might have on your arm that looks pretty gruesome at the beginning and it heals up pretty nicely. Sometimes scars can change and people will report that, you know, it seems a little bit better to me. And maybe I'm looking in the back of the eye and I don't notice a difference when I look, but they say that my vision has gotten better. Part of that too is your brain working to use the rest of your retina. That may be what's happened in this caller's case where over time her brain has figured out to use the how to use the adjacent part of the retina to see just a little bit better. Not going to be perfect like it was before, but that black spot may decrease and change over time as you begin to use at least a little bit, the, the adjacent parts of a retina. Well, thank you. So we have a number of questions that are here that are kind of the do's and don'ts of living with macular degeneration. And there's questions about supplements that someone might take. There's questions about uh, behaviors like exercise. You know, what do we know about, uh, about vitamins or about other supplements? Uh, specifically, people are asking about vitamin K, vitamin B. Uh, there's mention of the exercise. So what, what supplements are the most useful? Is there anything that we should avoid? 
Good, good questions. Um, so right now, for my patients who have intermediate AMD in both eyes or advanced AMD in one eye and intermediate AMD in the other eye, and that means they've got some drusen, and I think they're at risk for progressing, I'm concerned, I will recommend the AREDS-2 formula. And the reason I do that, you know, doctors, myself included, like to practice evidence-based medicine. And this, these results were based on two large clinical trials of about 5,000 people that said these, this combination, and they looked at several, but this combination is the best we can find to help prevent the advancement of AMD. And it's been shown to be safe. In the original AREDS, there was an association of the beta carotene with lung cancer in people who smoked, and that's taken out of AREDS too, so that doesn't even factor in anymore. So that's typically what I'll recommend. You mentioned vitamin K and vitamin B. I'll be honest, and I haven't heard any rationale for using either one of those in in AMD prevention. Um, and you always have to be careful. I tell all my patients, you know, people are concerned about these are large doses of vitamins, AREDS too. They've proven to be safe, but I'll always tell my patients, I want you to tell your primary care provider about this. And if I'm sending a letter back to their primary doctor, I'll say, we talked about the AREDS 2 formula, and as long as you think that's okay, we'll have the patient start taking that. In addition to that, a multivitamin, even on top of AREDS 2, is absolutely fine. Uh, and most of the people in the AREDS studies were actually taking a multivitamin as well, because the AREDS 2 doesn't cover kind of all of your needs. The other things that I tell people are, um, I mean, number one really is don't smoke. And people will want you know, the the pill or the cure, but if they're a smoker, the number one thing I can tell them to do is to stop smoking um, because we know that smoking affects just about any macular condition. And then I think exercise and eating healthy are just good things. It's anything that a cardiologist would tell you to try to decrease your uh, body mass index and make sure the weight's under control, make sure your blood pressure's under control, make sure your cholesterol is under control, because there has been some association, not huge, but some association of these cardiovascular type risk factors with macular degeneration. So if you're looking to do all you can, those are some things. Great. Thank you. So, Deanna, uh, I have a couple of questions that are coming in for you. And uh, one person is asking a very, a very personal question about what can I do to prepare myself for my eventual blindness. And I, I think that's a hard topic, this idea of blindness. She says, uh, and this is Sue from Michigan, she says, I don't know how to be blind. Do you, do you have anything you could tell Sue about that? Yes. If, if she has been diagnosed with um, age-related macular degeneration, one of the fears, of course, is that you're going to go, as I call it, completely blind or black blind. I think that was my biggest fear, that I wouldn't see the faces of my children or I wouldn't be able to drive or many other things that were so frightening. Um, in my progression of my own disease, I had to give up driving. But I have compensated by using my 
peripheral vision and learning how to practice and use the vision that may not be as fine a details as it is with central vision, but definitely it, it, I don't even know anymore what I don't see. I know that what I see I love, and I'm so grateful for seeing it. It's frightening to think that you're going to be blind. I didn't know how I was going to live as a blind person either, but I don't consider myself blind. I consider myself with low vision. I consider myself to have the ability to, to learn what I can, contact your local resources. They come to you. They are so extremely helpful. They have the, the some of the answers that you think aren't there. They will help to share information on how you can learn to live with blindness. And as I said, I took a course for low vision and no vision and learned so much. And this was even before that I my disease had progressed at that point. So the, the point is the information and education you can learn now will certainly make it a lot easier for you and to learn to live with it. Well, that's so that's so helpful. I, I I think one of the questions that people that we often hit bright focus here is the question of you know how do I know that I'm getting an appropriate treatment? And maybe I'll ask both of our our guests. You know, what are the questions that that we should be asking of our eye care providers? You know, are there are there for instance are there are there treatments that we should avoid? Uh, Deanna, how did you approach? making sure that you were getting the care that you wanted? Well, first of all, I had extreme confidence in my retinal specialist, um, and I felt from day A that my interests were at heart, and certainly his experience and his own background in macular degeneration was helpful to me. I learned about him through some uh, medical friends that I had, and I started going to him. So I started out with confidence in my doctor. As far as what treatment, I had to go by his his suggestions. First of all, when I first had it, there weren't any uh, treatments as there are today. And as new things came along, he would tell me or I would ask him, what's new, doc? And he would tell me. And then he'd say, I think this is good for you. I think that at one point, one of the older treatments known as photodynamic therapy uh, with a, a drug injected into my arm, that was a source that saved my vision in my good eye. That one did. And there injections weren't even heard of at that time. And then when injections came in, he was reluctant to try them because the PDT was working so well. But as time went on, he did try the combination, and then eventually I went to the injections only. So I followed his his lead, and I feel very, very happy with the results. And I think you have to have confidence in your doctor as well as learn and read what these things do and ask the questions. So, Dr. Brantley, uh, I mean, that sounds like really great advice. Is there anything that you would you would add to that? And are there any specific therapies that, if somebody put in front of you, you'd say eh, maybe 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 a second opinion would be in order? Yeah, I, it is hard to have an. Deanna talked about the importance of having confidence in your retina specialist. So, how could it be a better answer than that? Um, yeah. You know, I do think it's important to find that right person that you're comfortable with. And, and in terms of finding out if there are trials for you, finding out what the right therapies are, all of that revolves around finding the right person that you trust to take, help take care of your vision. Um, 
you know, she mentioned photodynamic therapy or PDT. Um, in my career, I started about the same time that PDT started. Um, it was uh, done when I was in, in residency. It was getting approved. That was so much better than what we had before. It was great. And then when the first injectable came along, that was about the same. And the second injectable drug came along, it was so much better than the PDT, then, you know, it did not take long for the entire community, retina community or treatment community, to know that that's really the way that you needed to go. I would just say, you know, any place worth its salt is going to be talking to you about injections, maybe mentioning trials that could be on top of injections. Um, if your only option is PDT, then there's going to be somebody else out there that will do injections. But I, I don't see that happening um, very frequently in the country. Well, thank you. I, so there's some questions that are coming in about surgical treatments, and we, we had a, a couple, that just an update on possible, possible surgical interventions. But within that, there's another, another question there about, uh, about an idea of what the doctor said there's a pucker in, in Tommy from Louisiana's eye. And what's a pucker, and what, what are the treatments, and are there effective surgeries, and are there effective surgeries for macular degeneration in general? Very good question. So macular pucker is not related to AMD, but it's a different thing. But some one person could certainly have both. Uh, a pucker is a, a wrinkling of the retina. And this is due to one of a couple of things. Either you can simply have some scar tissue grow on the retina, which is not uncommon and may or may not have a reason, but it happens. And that scar tissue then contracts and causes a wrinkle in the, in the retina itself, which causes a distortion in your vision. Um, it can also come some, from something called vitreomacular traction, where the gel in the back of your eye pulls a little bit on the retina and causes distortion. Both of those issues are definitely surgically treatable. Um, so you can have a, it's a real surgery where instruments are placed in the eye and that adhesion is broken or that scar tissue is removed and it will hopefully, the, there's a very good chance of the retina going back to its normal shape. It's over 90% of things being uh, returned to normal. And a lot of times, vision gets a lot better from that. Now, if you're being treated for wet macular degeneration and macular pucker at the same time, we think of the macular degeneration as more urgent. That needs to be dealt with, and you've got to get the injections, and you've got to get that done to get that fluid to settle down. And at that point, it might be a time to try macular pucker surgery. There's some thought, too, that having a macular pucker makes you maybe need more treatments because um, it just lessens the effect of the drug. That's not a, a definite proven clinical thing. In terms of surgical advancements for treatment for macular degeneration itself, there's really not much new right now, um, unless you're thinking stem cells placement as being a surgery um, or, or gene therapy as being a surgery. And they are, but they're not a... Um, not so much a structural surgery where you're trying to fix it. If you've got a scar in the back of your eye from macular degeneration, 
uh, a retina surgeon can't just go in there and take out that scar and make everything back to the way it was. There was a big trial back in the 90s that tried to remove those new blood vessels that leak called the submacular surgery trial. And the bottom line was that it didn't work out too well. And so other treatments have become much better in the interim since that. So we're really looking for you know stem cells or new drug therapies or therapies in addition to our anti-VEGF injections right now for AMD more than we're looking at surgical options. Well, we're, we're starting to run out of time, and I want to thank so much Dr. Brantley and Ms. Deanna for taking time to speak with us today, and thank you certainly to everyone who joined us on the call and asked the questions. We heard a lot today about horizons on macular degeneration. We learned about medical horizons. We, we learned about the, the status of stem cell research and gene therapy horizons. We, we talked something about, about personal horizons and how disease might progress. And we heard especially from, from Deanna who, who reminded us that we probably shouldn't think about macular degeneration as blindness, but we can talk about it as living with the vision we have and taking advantage of enjoying the world with the vision that, that, that is remaining to us. So we'll be posting a recording of this conversation and a large font transcript of the call on our website within just a couple weeks. And that's in case you want to refer back or tell others about the information we've shared today. If you registered for for today's call through our website or phone call, we'll email you with the information. You can also listen and download the past chats on iTunes and SoundCloud. Our next chat is going to be on specifically on treatments for macular degeneration. We're going to drill down on the existing treatments, what they are, how they work, what we can expect with existing treatments. And that's going to take place on Wednesday, April 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10, p- 10 a.m. Pacific. And we'll encourage you to register and submit your questions in advance. So we'll be sending you a reminder of that just coming up. So you can register for the April chat right now. You can also request free resources on macular degeneration, like our brochure, Macular Degeneration, The Essential Facts, by calling Bright Focus at 1-800-437-2423 or by visiting our website at brightfocus.org. Again, that's 1-800-437-2423 or brightfocus.org. We'd love to get your feedback on these chats by asking you one short question. And you can actually answer this question by using the keypad on your telephone. So here's the question. It's very simple. How would you rate our telephone chat? How did we choose? How did we do? So you can press 1 for very helpful, press 2 for eh, yeah, somewhat helpful, and press 3 for not helpful. You guys have some work to do. So those numbers, again, are press 1 for very helpful, press 2 for somewhat helpful, helpful, and press three for not very helpful. So, as we're as we're winding things down, I just want to remind that the bright focus bright focus chats are held on the last Wednesday of every month. And to find out about upcoming chats, just give us a call or check our website for updates. Thank you everyone for your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment after the call, just stay on the line. Thanks again. Thanks to our guests and thanks to all of our all of our callers, all of our speakers. Thanks from the Bright Focus Foundation. Have a great day.